This is Cuerpa Politica, a podcast about reproductive health, politics and justice in Latin America, funded by the Institute of Latin American Studies and co-hosted by me, Dr. Rebecca Ogden, lecturer in Latin American Studies at the University of Kent. And me, Dr. Rachel Sanchez-Rivera, postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Cuerpa Politica explores reproduction in Latin America through a series of conversations with activists, practitioners, artists, and researchers working in many different contexts. Latin American countries have some of the world's most contentious reproductive health laws and policies, and there are persistent challenges facing the quest for reproductive justice. In these episodes, our conversations with experts will explore contemporary issues, such as those relating to abortion access and obstetric violence, as well as histories of reproductive politics in the region. From the relationship between empire and reproduction, eugenics, 20th century fertility control measures and beyond. In many of the episodes, we consider culture as a lens through which to understand these contexts, exploring how cultural norms, as well as media and the arts, shape the political, legal and social realities of reproduction and vice versa. Follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you access podcasts and get in contact with us via our social media at Cuerpa Politica on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Alexander Mina Stern is a professor at the University of Michigan with appointments in the Departments of American Culture, Obstetrics and Gynecology, History, and Women's and Gender Studies. She is currently serving as the Associate Dean for Humanities in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. Her research focuses on the history of eugenics and the uses and misuses of genetics in the United States and Latin America. She has also written about the history of public health, infectious diseases, and tropical medicine. Throughout these topics, she explores the dynamics of gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, disability, social difference, and reproductive politics. Thank you very much uh, for being here, Professor Stern. Um, can we start with a brief explanation about eugenics, like broadly defined, and how this relates to po the politics of reproduction and understanding of reproductive injustices? That is a very big and important question. Um, and I think that we're still scholars of reproduction and of racism and of xenophobia and a range of other topics are continually grappling with the definition of eugenics and particularly the historical ramifications of eugenics. I, my go-to in terms of, you know, a definition is both to go back to the definitions offered by those who coined the term and were instrumental in shaping and defining the term in its historical time period. So I think when thinking about eugenics, it's important to go back to Galton and his 1883 initial definition and coining of the term. And for in, in the U.S. to stop at Charles Davenport and some of the other key figures connected to the eugenics records office. There, of course, were spinoff terms related to eugenics that are important in the Latin American context, such as homeoculture, and puericultura or puriculture, 
around childhood. And in the European context, sometimes terms such as racial hygiene are also important. So I think, you know, you have to have a sense of what is the, the semantic landscape, so to speak, of these terms in relation to thinking about reproduction, reproductive justice and injustice, I would say that one of the key framings for eugenics is to really understand it as both a quasi-scientific way to approach complex social problems, like that is a general good hook in terms of, well, what were these eugenicists doing? What perceived problems did they see and want to solve through these often like techno-scientific solutions that were quite simplistic in how they elaborated them? Um, At the same time, eugenics has always been in some way about demographic control. And demographic control from the most macro, let's say, so think of the kind of Latin federation of eugenics about demographic control from that or the international congresses on eugenics or even some of the, um, you know, more insidious uh, ways of understanding, um, you know, selective reproduction. So demographic control from, you know, the broadest sense and often on the national level. So if you want to understand eugenics and nationalism, it's always helpful to look at um, things around laws, around demography, often around family. And then also it does redound down to the individual level of the controlling of particular bodies, individual bodies in ways that sometimes might not seem if you're looking at a specific history as directly connected to eugenics or eugenics and understanding individual experiences might actually kind of dissipate as a seemingly important term. So I just remember one of the very smart things that Molly Ladd Taylor once said, she's a historian who's worked on the history of eugenics and sterilization in Minnesota. And she was, she spent a lot of time studying the experiences of um, mainly people with per- disabilities or perceived disabilities or kind of poor poor white people in Minnesota who were sterilized. And the way that she f- phrased it was, you know, this sterilization was just one of many bad things that happened to these people at the hands of the state. Um, some of the things, other things that happened to them, they might have even perceived as more negative, um, and they might have come out of very difficult households or undergone, you know, endured sexual abuse or other types of abuse in outside of the institution. So the institution was just another layer on top of it. So, yeah, I mean, I would say the key words would be demography, reproduction, breeding. Um, however, you know, that is really thinking about eugenics in terms of the state and state control of reproduction. And we know in more recent decades, eugenics is bound up in 
the choices or the constrained choices that people may often make around reproduction, particularly when it comes to genetic and reproductive technologies and making choices around like sperm donation or egg donation. There's eugenics entangled in that too. Uh, thank you very much for that answer. And now that like uh, we were talking briefly about the Latin Federation of Eugenics and different international congress and like how the semantic landscape like changes according to like different geographical locations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the development of eugenics ideas in Latin America and how does this relate to the term preventive eugenics coined by Nancy Steppen? Yeah, I think in a way... Um, the preventive eugenics term that she that she came up with is really helpful, I think, broadly um, in terms of making linkages between eugenics and public health or public health interventions meant to inoculate or prophylactically protect society against certain what were often referred to at the time as poisons, you know, quote unquote, racial poisons or other kind of deleterious effects associated with heredity. I think in the context of Latin America, one of the reasons why um, Stefan came up with that term was because she, she, I mean, her book really was so prescient. And if I'm, I think it was published in 1991. It wasn't 91. I was thinking 91 or 93, one of the two. It's 91. 91. Okay. So that is really, so that is 30 years ago, if I'm doing my math correctly, <laughs> which is really, you know, impressive. Um, and I think one of the, because she was the first person to write about eugenics in Latin America in a sustained way, seeking to apply that, this kind of analytical frame and looking at three closely at three different countries was seeking to understand how, eugenics in parts of the world where in general, although not exclusively, <clears throat> the neo-Lamarckian form took was dominant as opposed to where most of the tension had been placed up until the time, which was on Germany to some extent, a little bit on Western Europe and on the United States and the eugenics records office and sterilization laws, where we see much more of a fatalistic Mendelian type of approach. And so I think that <clears throat> she wanted to understand the kind of the harsher edge of eugenics in Latin America, um, even as, you know, some people have described neo-Lamarckianism as softer or as less likely to trend towards the extremism of Mendelian style eugenic understandings. So the preventive is really about, you know, it's, you know, if we look at the countries that she studied in many Latin American countries, many of them embraced a very robust and expansive public health programs, often influenced in the 19th century by, by the French and by, um, you know, the growing popularity and the kind of the paradigm shift over to bacteriology new understandings of kind of germs and disease and transmissibility. <clears throat> so the preventive eugenics helps us understand in Latin America how e eugenic ideas were often implemented, at least reaching broader publics through 
public health programs. Um, and also how there was a sense of wanting to engineer the population through demographic control <clears throat> or through the passage of specific laws, such as in Argentina, if you think of the premarital certificates. Um, and so I think it, it comes to her formulation of preventive eugenics helps us see how eugenics in Latin America was intimately connected to public health in particular, and was its own particular kind of social engineering that may not have been as extreme in terms of sterilization or the horrific, um, you know, the, the, the horrific things that we saw in Germany, um, but nonetheless was insidious and could be quite harsh and also permeated Latin American societies in ways that many scholars are still uncovering. So for example, in education. So I think of Jerry Davila's work on whiteness and eugenics and education in Brazil, um, as well as others who have uncovered kind of quote unquote voluntary sterilizations in more private clinics or even more publicly funded clinics in, in Argentina um, or other parts of Latin America. Yeah, definitely. And now, like, bringing it to the Mexican context, like, how does preventive eugenics relate to Mexican eugenics, like, especially when talking about your work, The Hour of Eugenics in Veracruz? I would say that, first of all, <clears throat> you can really see um, the connections between eugenics and public health formulations and how those were so essential to the development of political regimes or nationalist thinking in Mexico. So most broadly, eugenics and the timing of eugenics was such that it was accepted into and perpetuated by this expanding public health infrastructure and ideas and organizations both in the late 19th and early 20th century. And then in the, the revolution was a very busy time where some of this was more in, disrupted. But then once we get to the 1920s in Mexico and the kind of consolidation of the post-revolutionary state, eugenics is central to understanding how this new nation will be built and, you know, who it's, um, leaders are going to be and, and how it is going to be a coherent whole, you know, this I, which we'll, we might talk about later, the whole mestizophilia or the idea of building a mestizo nation. So you can see how that meshes with the ideologies of post-revolutionary nationalism. In addition, um, you know, preventive eugenics, you can see it in the domain of, you know, the family and reproduction <clears throat> with the prominence of Periculture, and there is a Mexican society devoted to that, and as well as an in intense focus and anxieties around sexuality. And so around female sexuality, controlling female sexuality, and there's a way in which these kinds of anxieties around, quote unquote, racial poisons are often connected to venereal diseases and wanting to stamp out venereal diseases for the health of the nation or in the case of Veracruz for the health of the state 
And so the governor there, um, Aldoberto Tejada, is, wants to really build this, like it's almost like he his he wants to craft, and that's interesting because he comes out of this, let's say, really paternalistic socialist tradition where he wants to build a certain type of what he would view as kind of political utopia, but that involves oppressing women and particularly those who are maybe doing sex work, maybe perceived as doing sex work. Um, and they are, you know, pulled into the, you know, often by public health authorities and forced to, you know, undergo um, VD testing and so on. So I think that that kind of, one could call it a kind of fixation on so sexual purity that becomes part of the reproductive the reproductive, the, the, re, the oppressive reproductive approaches in Veracruz, which is in the grand scheme of thing. I mean, it's generally permeates the environment, but it is his kind of his regime is pretty short lived in the grand scheme of things. So there's a heightened moment. But I think that heightened moment is emblematic of certain tendencies we see in Latin America, particularly where preventive eugenics um sexual policing and a focus on women's bodies in particular as need, needing to be managed by male state elites. All of that kind of comes together in Veracruz in the 1930s. And uh, talking about like the elite control and uh, uh, the timing of eugenics and the post-revolutionary state and nationalism, why is Mexican eugenics so important to understanding terms like mestizophilia, uh, the creation of the the modern nation state and biotypology? Yeah, there's a lot in that question. Um, I would say that, first of all, as we were discussing before, Mexico in the 1920s is, uh, um, you know, kind of the post-revolutionary leaders turn to you, a, a kind of obvious and latent eugenic ideas in thinking about how to build this new nation. And there are, we know there been, there's been racism, exclusionary racial politics in uh, Mexico for decades, if not centuries, in a range of different ways that scholars have explored. Um, by the time we get to the 1920s, this is manifesting in this interesting way where, um, you know, if you think of like Jose Vasconcelos and the cosmic race, the approach really is one that is about building, rejecting the kind of racial purity doctrines that are prominent in the United States and kind of in the quote unquote imperial countries, as they would call them, and looking for eugenics that is more, to some extent, expansive, and that is more hybridized. And in that hybridization, Mexican post-revolutionaries hope to build the, it's very gendered, but kind of this mestizo nation often represented by, you know, kind of the um, muscular mestizo man who is working in the factories or working in the fields, who's kind of a foot soldier for the new nation. Um, if you look closely at this, though, you find that it carries its own set of internal exclusions, um, you know, in terms of both, you know, Afro diasporic peoples in Mexico, as well as, you know, virulent xenophobia or anti-Chinese sentiment. 
So what you have there is almost, you know, it's a kind of, it's a almost caricatured celebration of indigenous aspects of Mexico. And certainly, you know, what it comes down to is a, um, the, the greatest appreciation of kind of the Spanish heritage or the Southern European heritage in, in Mexico. So I would say that, you know, you can't really understand the racial politics, racial politics or, and, and the demographic approaches of the post-revolutionary state without understanding eugenics. You can't really understand its gender politics without understanding eugenics. And I think, Rachel, you've written about, you know, you thinking about the family as a site of analysis for understanding Mexican eugenics, both on the, you know, kind of micro scale of the family itself as an object of state intervention, but also the family as, you know, kind of proxy or metaphor for the nation as a whole. And who's in this family, who's in and who's out of the Mexican family and how is that being policed from, again, the level of the individual family to what's going on with like um, family planning laws and really kind of demographic, you know, this obsession with demography um, and, you know, and counting. And that gets to the biotypology uh, part of your question, actually. So biotypology, you know, again, which was one of these, you know, really gained sway in Italy and in a few other European countries, transferred so so smoothly to Latin America because it allowed for more flexibility. Like it was a mixture of kind of more flexibility in eugenic approaches at the same time that it was a tool for hyper-attention and cl- of classification. Um, so it really is quite astounding if you go back to the period from like the 20s to the 50s to see how many Latin American scientists and Mexican scientists in particular were pretty obsessed with creating all these biotypes. Um, and on the one hand, they wanted to get away from putting people in like firewalled containers, let's say, like really discrete racial types and think of things more on a spectrum. But if you really look at how people were typed, they pretty much were caricatured into often like three different types, which would be, you know, kind of to just put it bluntly, you know, underdeveloped, normal, and then overdeveloped which then maps onto civil, civilizational discourses and so on. Um, you know, and also it was a way of determining, you know, in Mexico, which of the indigenous groups were more likely to be able to move into the middle class and how quickly, and which were just frankly too uncivilized for, you know, scientists and elites to have much hope of their incorporation. Yeah, no, definitely. And I I think uh, because we're already talking about racial politics and how uh, and gender politics and how this uh, like you cannot understand them without uh, eugenics and how 
uh, it permeates even after the 50s, like in very uh, insidious ways. How do these legacies of eugenics like operate now, both in Mexico and transnationally? Uh, could you explain like uh, um, how in your books, like eugenic nations and telling genes, you show the ways in which eugenics like continue to echo or inform institutional uh, practices and ideas of reproductive injustices, like in, in the US and Latin America? Yeah, I'd start off by saying that because in my back, way back in my dissertation work, uh, my dissertation was a comparison of eugenics in Mexico and in what had, and, and in the Western United States, particularly that part of the Southwest and the, the West, the US West that um, had been part of Mexico. So I was thinking about it in terms of almost greater Mexico or the borderlands. And because I spent so much time studying eugenics in Mexico for the dissertation, Um, and really grappling. One of the things I had to do right off the bat was to grapple with the time frame that had been given for eugenics histories at that point, which really basically came to a screeching halt in 1940, um, based on, or 1945, based on, you know, that those years based on looking at the experiences in Germany and the Holocaust and when the In most intense period of passing sterilization laws in the United States happened. If you look at Latin America, however, what you see is that you need to have a, a, a different chronology, a different timescape, and that that timescape is actually more representative internationally of the uptake of eugenics and of its continuities across the 20th century. So that was one thing. So I think that really with Latin America is crucial for really understanding the timescapes of eugenics on a more glo global scale. So that's one point. In terms of the legacies um, kind of post like the heightened period of eugenics, let's say like post 1970s to today, and I'm talking more about eugenics organizations or explicit passage of explicit eugenic laws when there was kind of pushback against some of those, um, but nonetheless continuities and legacies. Um, you know, first of all, we continue to see, um, you know, eugenics play out in terms of particularly demography and approaches to demography. Um, secondly, in Mexico, you know, the the focus and the kind of consolidation of ideas around mestizo identity and Mexico being a mestizo nation, those reappear in the late 20th century 2000s with really a quest to map the, hum the Mexican genome and to demonstrate that it, it, there is something almost as if a, a mestizo genome. And if you're going to find it, it can be found in Mexico. So this whole project is launched um, to basically map the mestizo genome, which is in a way would be Vasconcelos's you know, greatest dream realized a hundred years later, if this actually scientific proof were given for the existence of, so that's, so that continues to play out. And then more generally, I would say that, you know, and I don't actually know, you might know how many 
Mexicans use reproductive technologies or how how active the fertility industry is in Mexico? Um, because there would be similar questions that we would find in the U.S. about when people are making decisions about, you know, purchasing. It's often like through a commodified and anthropologists have looked at this really smartly, you know, the commodification of biological products and reproductive technologies, you know, they are buying things that, you know, products that are more likely to allow for the reproduction of, you know, seemingly normal, often fairer skinned children. I don't really know that much about that Mexico in that regard. I think it would be interesting to study that and try to understand the legacies of eugenics in that regard. That is a great research project. Uh, uh, oh, oh God, I got a bit. Uh, so uh, what are the questions like guiding your research now? Like uh, maybe we could possibly uh, discuss like your latest book, uh, Proud Boys and the White Ethno States. And uh, maybe we can also talk about uh, the eugenic Rubicon, the digital archive of sterilization in 20th century uh, California. Uh, and maybe even your project on uh, sterilization and the social justice lab. Yeah, thank you for those questions. So my work on eugenics does continue, um, most um, notably, I would say, in the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab, which has uh, been in existence for about eight years now and started off as a project based on records that I luckily located in California, um, which are 20,000, well, 20,000 sterilization recommendations from the state of California from the period of 1919 to 1952. So a huge number of records, not just the, the actual records that I found included the sterilization recommendations, as well as about 30,000 additional forms, um, which include letters and surgical consents and put consent in scare quotes there because consent was very complicated and you know kind of a farce. Um, as well as other documents related to release and notes that were taken by the Department of uh, Institutions and so on. So that project started off with California and out of that has come two papers published in the past few years. The first one um, estimated the likely number of living sterilization survivors in California. Um, we first calculated that, and this was working with our interdisciplinary team because the lab is not just me, it's a collective effort and our commitments are rooted in supporting reproductive justice and, and using really that framework in our work. Um, but one of our, Nicole Novak, our lead epidemiologist, she did the life tables analysis for that paper. And, you know, we did our first calculation for 2017, which demonstrated that, you know, approximately 800 plus people would be alive. Now we fast forward to 2021 and sadly that number is dwindling down to below 400. However, this research has informed and, you know, it's actually included in the write-up of a bill that we hope will pass in California to compensate sterilization survivors. Um, 
uh, with uh, similar to what happened in North Carolina and Virginia. So, so that work, and then another piece we did demonstrates that Spanish surnamed individuals, Latinx, primarily Mexican origin, were disproportionately sterilized, particularly young Latinx women, you know, aged like even as young as 12 to, you know, 24, were disproportionately sterilized in state institutions. Since then, the lab has expanded to include um, records from other states, including North Carolina, thanks to Johanna Schoen, who was generous enough to join the project, and uh, Iowa, as well as Michigan, where one of the graduate students involved in the project, Kate O'Connor, finally got access to Michigan sterilization records. And we hope in the next iteration of the project, we will also include Utah. So ultimately, we have geographical representation from the US. Um, we can do cross-state comparisons. And really, in total, these records comprise about 35,000 sterilization orders or recommendations, which is more than half of those performed in the US, at least those that were recorded that were performed across the in, in the first half of the, of the 20th century. Well, not the first half because some of them in, in, continued on into the 1960s and 70s, but in that kind of the bulk of the 20th century. And we're very active in doing many, both like scholar, scholarly presentations, media engagement, and that is connected to Eugenic Rubicon which I'm working on with Jacqueline Wernemont at Dartmouth. Um, you know, she's the kind of whiz when it comes to the digital humanities and building up the digital, um, you know, the digital bells and whistles of the site. And, uh, but she and I have been working on, um, you know, putting this together and we have been slowed down by COVID. It was, it was very hard to, we had to kind of stop for a little bit, but we've picked it back up. And, you know, our aim is by next summer to have a, we already started a eugenic Rubicon site, but this will be a more expansive site that includes more of the states and has big data accessible through interactive formats. And then finally, in terms of my most recent book, it, one of the, there, there are points of similarity between eugenicists, and this is focusing on May, almost exclusively on the United States, between the eugenicists of the early 20th century and white nationalists today, which is a focus, a narcissistic focus on their own whiteness, often is defined through biological essentialism or ideas of kind of white purity or homogeneity, which are deeply pro problematic, but nonetheless professed by them, as well as intense demographic anxieties. So one of the reasons I wrote Proud Boys in the White Ethnostates was that in the summer of 2016, everywhere around me when I was looking at kind of the rise of the alt-right and white nationalism, I was finding references to Madison Grant and to Lothrop Stoddard and to other early 20th century eugenicists in the U.S. who pushed hard for um, the harsh immigration laws that were passed in the 1920s that put a quota on a very low quota on immigrants entering the U.S. and resulted in the creation of the Border Patrol and so on. And I became very interested in why Grant was being resurrected and seen as relevant to the U.S. in the 2010s. 
And, you know, first and foremost, he was seen as relevant because his demographic vision and his ideas of immigration control and as well as breeding and who should be breeding and, you know, kind of what rules and kind of um, assumptions underlying that were basically seen as a go-to for white nationalists and ethno-nationalists today. Thank you very much. Like this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Thank you to the Institute of Latin American Studies, School of Advanced Study, University of London for generously funding this project. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cuerpa Politica. Join us for a new episode every fortnight and click on the follow button to receive notifications about podcast episodes. <laughs>